Welcome to Sabbath School brought to you by It Is Written. We're glad that you could join us today as we continue our journey through three cosmic messages, looking at the three angels' messages in Revelation chapter 14 and how they interact with the rest of the Bible. We're delighted to have back again with us the author of this quarter's lesson, that is Pastor Mark Finley. We're going to get his thoughts on lesson number five, the good news of the judgment, in just one moment. But let's begin with prayer. Father, we thank you so much for being with us today and giving us another opportunity to dig more deeply into your word and to understand these incredible messages. We ask that you'll bless us today, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Pastor Mark, welcome back. I'm delighted to be back. This has been an enjoyable discussion. It has indeed, and we've still got a few weeks left of this discussion to go. But this week, we've got a really interesting subject. It's it's a, a title that you might say is a little bit strange. It's the good news of the judgment. Now, most of the time when I meet somebody, if I were to tell them, you're about to be judged, they, a smile wouldn't erupt on their face. They'd be a little bit concerned. Why, and why title this one, the good news of the judgment? I think because the odds are stacked in our favor. Let me explain what I mean by that. Why is the judgment good news? First, Jesus said in the Gospel of John, that the Father judges no man, but he's given all judgment to the Son. So we know that our judge is Jesus. But then in 1 John chapter 2, it says we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Advocate is our lawyer. So let's suppose you're in a courtroom and you're being judged by the judge and he judges you. Then he comes down, stands by your side and defends your case you would say that's a conflict of interest. You can't have a judge who's your lawyer. But the incredible good news about the judgment is that Christ, who is my judge, also is my lawyer, and he's doing everything possible to save me and get me into his kingdom. So that ought to be encouraging. But, but again, when most people think about the judgment, they think it's a scary thing. doesn't sound like there's any reason for, for a genuine Christian to be scared of the judgment. No, if we are in Christ, there is no reason to be scared of the judgment. If we are not in Christ, there's plenty of reasons to be scared of the judgment. And uh, the book of Revelation echoes with this urgency of judgment that our lives are totally committed to Christ. In Revelation chapter 14, that we have been studying verse 6 and verse 7. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those that dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God, give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come. So let's pause there. You have an urgent end-time message that announces that it's no longer business as usual no longer pleasures as usual, no longer life as usual, that the clock has struck the hour, that we're living in the climactic hours of earth's history, that the hour of God's judgment has come. Now, notice the phrase says the hour of God's judgment. That's an interesting expression, the hour of his judgment. In the controversy between good and evil, Satan has claimed that God is unfair and unjust. On the cross of Calvary, Jesus revealed his goodness, his grace, and that he was loving. And he settled before the universe forever that God is not a vindictive judge, wrathful tyrant, that he's filled with love. 
But how does that play out in every individual life? How does that play out in the panorama of the conflict between good and evil? The judgment reveals God's fairness, his justice, his mercy. The judgment really reveals, Pastor, that God has done everything he could to save every human being. The hour of his judgment has come, and we become exhibits in that judgment. We become specimens in that judgment. We become witnesses. Or witnesses is a better word than exhibits or specimens. We become witnesses to his grace and goodness in the judgment. So in this judgment, not only are, are we finding out which direction we're going, as it were, but God, to some extent or another, is also his character is being tried to see whether he did indeed do everything possible. The word mercy comes to mind. Do we deserve mercy? Probably not. Uh, we deserve condemnation. And yet, if we receive Jesus, if he stands as our lawyer, as he st- if he stands as our judge, we're, we're hoping for mercy. We're praying for mercy. Can we expect that we would get mercy if we don't deserve it? If we deserved it, it wouldn't be mercy. Mm. So <laughs> the answer is yes. Um, none of us deserve God's grace. The Bible says, for by grace are you saved through faith. It's the gift of God, not of yourself. A gift is something I don't deserve. And so the mercy of God in the judgment reveals his character of love and grace and goodness. Now, Revelation 14 clearly explains that we cannot trifle with his grace or mercy. It's not cheap grace. It's not this so-called soft love that says, love God and do whatever you want. If you love God, you will do what he wants, not what you want. But notice the phrases that lead us into the idea of the hour of his judgment has come. It says, fear God. The word fear there is foibo, and that means have an attitude of deep respect to God. In fact, foibo is an interesting Greek word. It means take God seriously. Take him seriously. Don't play around with him. Don't, don't fiddle with your salvation. Fear God is a state of mind Give glory to him in your lifestyle. For the hour of his judgment is coming. In other words, since we're living in the judgment hour, take God seriously. Commit your life to him. Have nothing between you and Jesus. And let your life glorify him. Glorify him whatever you do. So the idea of the judgment hour compels us to be deeply committed to Christ, to search for his truth, and to live in harmony by his grace with that truth. So we can, we can look forward to mercy if we are in him, if we have embraced him and his, his sacrifice for us, his love for us. Uh, he makes it available to everyone. I want to approach this gently so that we don't stray to the left or to the right of it too far. You could go into the, into the judgment afraid, worried, or... I suppose it's probably also possible to go in overconfident. Where, where is that, that healthy confidence that we need not fear without uh, being boastful? Uh, is there, is there a, a happy area in there? It is the recognition that I don't deserve his mercy or grace. It's the recognition that salvation is all of him, that my sinful, decrepit, defiled life is not worthy of his merit or salvation. I go into the judgment throwing myself into the arms of Jesus. As long as I am in Christ, I have eternal life. 
If I'm outside of Christ, I don't have eternal life. I can be afraid of the judgment if I think that the judgment is balancing good works with bad works. So if I say, okay, I committed 798 good works in this week, but I only committed 692 bad works, so I'm in pretty good shape. Oh, but next week I committed 800 bad works and 500 good works. I'm not in good shape. Up, down, up. So if I think of the judgment as a balanced scale between good works and bad works, then I enter into the judgment either in one of two problems. Arrogant, because I think I'm committing so many good, performing so many good works, and I enter in with pride, or I enter in totally depressed because I see my bad works overwhelming me. So the judgment is not good works and bad works weighed out. It's rather, how has my commitment to Jesus manifest itself in good works? How has the grace of God transformed my life? Because you will recall in Ephesians chapter 2, often Ephesians 2, 8 is quoted without quoting the rest of the passage. So if you look at Ephesians 2, verse 8, and go ahead and pick up verse 8, 9, and 10 of Ephesians 2. Paul writes, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. What an amazing passage. It really summarizes the gospel, its meaning, its significance, and summarizes how we can have confidence in the judgment. Why? Because verse 8, by grace you have been saved through faith. So salvation comes by grace, through faith receives it. Some people I've heard say, we're saved by faith. No. My faith doesn't save me. God's grace does. Faith is a gift God gives me to receive the grace of God. It says that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. Then it says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. So we should never think that good works do not um, have any relevance in the Christian life. Those who are saved by grace through faith are led into a dynamic relationship with Christ in which their works reflect God's grace and God's goodness. Somebody said, my faith in Christ is so good that it works. Mm. I've heard someone say that uh, an apple tree does not produce apples in order to prove it is an apple tree. An apple tree produces apples because it is an apple tree. So a Christian who is surrendered to Jesus, who is saved by grace through faith, their life will naturally reflect that in in the things that they do or don't do, in the lives that they live, in the works that they do. Oh, not saved by works, but saved by God's grace through faith. Exactly. One of the things that we bring out in the lesson that I think is, is, is a quite significant is to try to clear up some of the misunderstandings of this uh, faith and works. And in Monday's lesson, which we title God's Mercy and God's Judgment, I write there, that first paragraph, the cross and judgment both reveal that God is just and merciful. The broken law demands the death of the sinner. Justice declares the wages of sin is death. Mercy responds, the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
If God's law could have been changed or abolished, it would be totally unnecessary for Jesus to die. Christ's death establishes the eternal nature of the law. Now notice this next sentence. The law is the basis of the judgment. Now, many people wonder, what role do our works have in the judgment? But Revelation is clear. Let's go over to Revelation 20, verse 12. Revelation 20, verse 12. And let's read that. I know you're going to want to take a break, but we'll read it before the break, maybe, and then unpack it right after the break. Sure. Revelation chapter 20, verse number 12. It says, And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. So that's a fascinating verse, and we are going to be unpacking that one in just a moment. You don't want to miss it. Before we do, though, I want to remind you, if you have not yet picked up the companion book to this quarter's lesson, you want to make sure that you do that. It is called Three Cosmic Messages by Pastor Mark Finley. You can find this book at itiswritten.shop. That's itiswritten.shop, and it will give you much more background, a lot more supporting information, quotes, references to what we are looking at this quarter. We're going to be back in just a moment as we dig more into this relationship between faith and works. We'll see you in just a moment. You know that at It Is Written, we are serious about the study of the Word of God. And we encourage you to be serious about God's Word also. Well, I want to share with you another way that you can dig deeper into the Word of God. And here it is. Itiswritten.study Go online to itiswritten.study and you can access the It Is Written Bible Study Guides. 25 in-depth Bible studies that will walk you through the Bible. It's going to be good for you. And it's the sort of thing that you will want to tell somebody else about so that they can dig deeper into the Word of God and come to know the things of the Bible intimately. As you get into the It Is Written online Bible study guides, you'll understand the prophecies of the Bible, the plan of salvation, and more. So don't forget, itiswritten.study. Itiswritten.study. Welcome back to Sabbath School, brought to you by It Is Written. We are taking a look at the judgment and, uh, and really why there's no reason to be afraid of it. Pastor Mark, we're looking at Revelation chapter 20, verse number 12. Uh, let me read through that again, and we've kind of dissected part of it, but let's, let's work on the second half. It says, And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. So what relationship are we finding here between faith and works and how people are saved? How does that all work out? Your good works can never save you. We're saved by grace. But your bad works can condemn you to eternal loss. So, you know, when the Bible says very clearly we're judged according to our works, what does that mean? Does it mean that our works are meritorious? Does it mean that our works enable us to earn salvation? Not at all. But when you really think about it, how do you measure faith? Is faith something that's ethereal? Can I say I have faith in Christ and then go out and shoplift at a store? 
can I say I have faith in Christ and then go watch something immoral on the internet? Can I say I have faith in Christ and say, but wait a minute, I don't want to be involved in giving it all to the um, cause of Christ. You see, so, so faith is not something intangible. Faith is a relationship with God as a friend well-known that leads me to do whatever pleases him. My good works reveal the depth of my faith. So it's obvious that judgment would be based on works. It's not that my works save me, but it's my works reflect whether my faith is genuine, whether my faith is authentic or not. So it's, it's evidence, as it were. Yes. Okay, very good. You, you draw our attention to an interesting statement uh, in Monday's lesson. And it comes from Testimonies for the Church, Volume 5, on pages 471 and 472. I want to read this and then give you an opportunity to, uh, to respond to it. It says, The fact that the acknowledged people of God are represented as standing before the Lord in filthy garments should lead to humility and deep searching of heart on the part of all who profess his name. Those who are indeed purifying their souls by obeying the truth will have a most humble opinion of themselves. The more closely they view the spotless character of Christ, the stronger will be their desire to be conformed to his image, and the less will they see of purity or holiness in themselves. But while we should realize our sinful condition, we are to rely upon Christ as our righteousness, our sanctification, and our redemption. We cannot answer the charges of Satan against us. Christ alone can make an effectual plea in our behalf. He is able to silence the accuser with arguments founded not upon our merits, but on his own. Help us to grasp. There's a lot in there. You know, when you were saying help us grasp that, I was about ready to say, Pastor Eric, we're going to be studying this through all eternity. <laughs> you know, when you think about it, it's so broad, and you're so right. It's, uh, there's so much. This one sentence toward the end of the paragraph just touches my heart. While we should realize our own sinful condition, we do. You know, we realize that we're weak, we're frail. We are to rely upon Christ as our righteousness, our sanctification, and our redemption. I want to pause there. It's not only that I rely on Christ to justify me, to enable me to stand before God just as if I'd never sinned. It is not that I rely on Christ to deliver me from the guilt and shame of sin. And then I work out my own salvation on my own after that. Not at all. Um, You know, the text that says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, the following verse in Philippians 2 says, for it's God that worketh in you both to do and good his, his good pleasure. So I am justified by faith in Christ. His righteousness covers my past, but I'm also sanctified by faith. That same faith that accepts Christ's death for me, that same faith reaches up to the intercession of Christ to receive Christ's power for me to live in my life. So he is our righteousness, he is our sanctification, and ultimately he's our redemption. He is the one that comes again for us. We cannot answer the charges of Satan against us. Christ alone can make that effectual plea in our behalf. So our salvation is totally dependent on our relationship 
with the on what Christ has done for us and our response to what he has done that develops a relationship with him. And it's a, a natural outflow of Christ in our hearts is the lives that we live. I, I've heard some people say to not bother trying to live right, not try bother trying to keep the commandments if you're trying to do it under your own power because you're just going to make yourself miserable and everybody around you miserable. I, I don't think that we can do it. In fact, I know that we can't do it under our own power. But with Christ in us, that's where miracles happen. It is. And the whole good news of the judgment that uh, both Revelation and Daniel are speaking about in this cosmic controversy between good and evil with tens of thousands of angels and cherubims and seraphims and beings from unfallen worlds with, and the whole universe looking in, the whole issue of the judgment is the worthiness of Christ. Is Christ worthy? Is Christ... Uh, has Christ provided everything necessary for our salvation? And before a waiting world, a watching universe, in this cosmic conflict between good and evil, it is revealed that Jesus is worthy. He created us. He redeemed us. He's our high priest. He's coming again for us. Pastor Mark, you just mentioned, uh, albeit in passing, Daniel chapter 7. Yeah. And Daniel 7 has a, a fantastic judgment scene in it. Why don't you open that up to us sure. a little bit? We actually go to that in Tuesday's lesson in Daniel chapter 7. So let me just summarize for us that judgment scene in the seventh chapter of the book of Daniel. We find it here in Daniel chapter 7. And um, we're going to start there with verse 9. And I'll just skip through this chapter. Daniel says, I watched till thrones were put in place. Just a pause there. The thrones must be movable. Because they're put in place. They're movable thrones. The supreme court of the universe sits in the most holy place of heaven's sanctuary. The Father and the Son move together in a unique work that's described as the judgment hour. The Ancient of Days was seated, the Father. His garment was white as snow. The hair of his head was pure wool. His throne is a fiery flame. Its wheels, that's the wheels on the throne, is a burning fire. So the Bible pictures this, this, this unique move into the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary to begin a work of judgment. It talks in verse 10 about thousand thousands ministered unto him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was set and the books were opened. So here you have the sitting of the supreme court of the universe with thousands of heavenly beings. But interestingly enough, go ahead and pick up verse 13 and 14. I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. In the beginning of the book of, of chapter 7 of Daniel, you have the four kingdoms, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. They, they passed away. Then you have the breakup of the Roman Empire and the rise of the little horn, a political religious kingdom that would attempt to change God's law and set up a political religious alliance that would bring peace to earth, which, of course, it has tragically failed in doing that. But then Daniel looks away from the uh, horizontal look. He looks away from what's going on on earth to the heavenly sanctuary. And he sees the sitting of the judgment. He sees the ancient of days sit. 
and the living Christ approaches the Ancient of Days. Notice the interesting title of Christ in verse 13. It says, Jesus is like the Son of Man. Why the Son of Man? Why doesn't it say the Son of God approaches him? Because this is the Christ that tabernacled in human flesh. This is the Christ that lived and died for us. This is the Christ who is our elder brother. He comes to the Father. And based upon the fact that he has sacrificed his life for us, he is worthy to receive worship and worthy to receive the kingdom. So in the judgment, the righteousness of Christ is revealed, the grace of Christ is revealed, and he comes and the kingdom is given to Christ. So Daniel 7 gives us a beautiful picture of the judgment and Christ's role in it. That's not the only picture of the judgment we find in the Bible. Over in Revelation 4 and 5, we see kind of a similar uh, picture, a similar scene. Share that with us. We do. Um, In Revelation 4 and 5, um, there's different interpretations of that passage. But in Revelation 4 and 5, one thing is common, that it certainly is a passage of praise and worship. And... um, There are many scholars who believe this talks about the inauguration of Christ, that when he ascended to heaven, this praise was given to him. The point is this. Daniel 7 points out that Jesus is worthy to receive the kingdom. His worthiness to receive the kingdom is based on two things. One, he created the world. But second, he leaped into the flames of this world and redeemed it. So we find in Revelation chapter 5 very similar language to Daniel 7. And even if one interprets this as the inauguration of Christ when he ascends to heaven after his, his death and resurrection, the truth of the matter is that all of heaven is worshiping him and he's worthy to receive that worship and the final consummation of the plan of salvation will ultimately take place in the judgment when he receives his kingdom and Satan's host are ultimately defeated when Jesus comes again and after that millennial period when the Holy Spirit, the Holy City descends. But here in Revelation chapter 5, it says, you're worthy to take the scroll, verse 9, to open the seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and nation and people in tongue. We find that in Revelation chapter 14, where it says the hour of his judgment has come. The everlasting gospel goes to every nation, tongue, and people. So here, it says you've made us kings and priests to God. We'll reign on earth. So Christ receives the kingdom after the judgment, and the whole universe sees the greatness, the goodness, the majesty of God. They see that he's done everything he could to save us, And he's worthy to receive the kingdom. And then it's interesting. Judgment is passed in favor of the saints of God. And that is fantastic news. You know, this week, the title of it was The Good News of the Judgment. And I hope that you have found some good news there. Pastor Mark, thank you for helping us to find the good news. And thank you for joining us. We pray that your next week will be a blessed one. And we look forward to seeing you again next time here on Sabbath School, brought to you by It Is Written.